You're listening to Louisiana Insider, a superlative guide to a great state's destinations. Hosted by Errol Laborde, executive editor of Louisiana Life Magazine. It's not Louisiana song. It's my favorite melody. It's not Louisiana song. Hearing it echo through the cypress trees. Our guest today is Steve Roberts. Steve Roberts is one of these people that uh, from hosting the show, sometimes it's challenging, but sometimes you have people, there are so many credentials. By the time you finish all the credentials, it's time to, to end the show. And so a shortened version can be, he's known in many different ways as, as, a, uh, as a syndicated columnist, as a commentator on, on, on television uh, and in the news. Uh, he was the husband of the late um, Koki Roberts. His mother was Lindy Boggs. Uh, which means that his, uh, I mean, his mother-in-law was Lindy Boggs and his father-in-law was Hale Boggs. This is guy, he's not, Steve isn't from Louisiana, but man, he's got an ultimate Louisiana experience uh, being in the family of two members of Congress and uh, a, a, a renowned commentator in her own way uh, with, uh, with, with Koki. And, and plus, Lindy's name, we'll talk about that. Lindy's family name was Claiborne. And Claiborne is like an old distinguished name. That'd be like if you're from Virginia and married to the, in the Lee family. So, and so you, uh, um, you're really connected. Uh, and, and Steve, one reason, there's lots of reasons I'm glad to have an opportunity to talk to you, but you, you've had a book that's uh, just come out. It's about Koki. It's called Koki, uh, A Life Well Lived. And uh, I want to talk a little bit about that. You and Koki first met, what, in 1966? Uh, we actually met in 1962, and by the way, with all of my Louisiana and New Orleans connections, I would add the fact that I have a grandson who's now a freshman at Tulane. So, okay, okay, uh, the, the family uh, connections to New Orleans continue uh, as a vibrant and wonderful part. Of and also, Lind Lindy also was uh, connected to the Morrison family, too. That's true. Yeah, and the Morrison family is very prominent in New Orleans politics. So she was connected in all uh, in all kinds of ways. So where did, you and Koki, where did you and Koki meet? Well, we were both in college. Uh, I was at Harvard, she was at Wellesley. Um, and we both uh, were involved in student politics. And in the summer of 1962, um, we were, it was between our sophomore and junior years in college. And uh, we were both delegates to a convention called the National Student Association Convention. It was at Ohio State University. And, um, I had heard of her, I had heard of her sister. She had met my brother and uh, my twin brother. And she tells the story that she saw me across the room and said, well, that looks like Mark Roberts. And then she thought, well, is it not quite like Mark Roberts? And <laughs> she came over and um, she looked at my name tag and said, are you Mark Roberts's brother? And I looked at her name tag and said, are you Barbara Boggs's sister? And, uh, <laughs> good and comeback, good comeback. Uh, and that's how we met. And uh, fortunately, um, it turns out our dorms uh, back in Boston were 12 and a half miles apart. Um, and so when we went back to school that fall, we started dating. But it took another four years for me to get smart enough to ask her to marry me. Uh, so we didn't get married till 1966. But um, uh, and we were married for 53 years before she died two years ago. And I'm sitting today, Errol, in the house that uh, Koki grew up in. 
Hale and Lindy bought this house in 1952. Um, and uh, they lived in it together for 25 years. And, um, and then we bought it from Lindy in 1977 and uh, uh, lived in here, this house ever since. And I can look out the window just to my left. Uh, and um, it's the uh, in the garden of this house is where Koki and I were married in 1966. So there's a lot of history here. Now, I, I know you, you were able to experience uh, uh, some time with Lindy. I'm gonna talk about that a little bit later. But like Hailbox uh, that disappeared in that plane crash in 72. So you'd have been in the family by then. Uh, did you get to know him very well? Uh, not as well as I would have liked um, because uh, Koki and I, after we got married, we moved around. We moved to New York where I was on the city staff of the New York Times and then moved to Los Angeles. We were living in Los Angeles in 1972 when he was killed. But I always deeply admired him. And uh, when I talk about Hale uh, to my own children and my grandchildren, uh, I make the point that in 1965, um, Hale Boggs was virtually the only member of Congress from the Deep South to vote for the Voting Rights Act. And it was an act of great courage. And um, not only did he vote for it, but he actually spoke for it on the floor of the House and put his entire political career at great risk. In fact, in 1968, uh, when he ran for re-election, it was the closest election in the country that year. He was almost defeated because he was such a strong supporter of civil rights. And I say to my, my children and grandchildren, when you remember Pawpaw, as he was called in the, in the family, remember that moment of supreme courage. Um, and it's a great legacy that I hope is passed down to the next generations. You know, it's a very difficult time for Southern members of Congress because you had all of those types of issues and those uh, who wanted to do the right thing did that great political cause. Well, that's true. And, you know, Hale and Lindy, you know, uh, had always fought together as a team for civil rights. And um, when Hale was killed in 1972 in a plane crash, as you point out, Arrow, um, it was the city of New Orleans just basically uh, unanimously understood and decided that Lindy should replace him in Congress. But there's a funny story in the book where Lindy called her great and dear friend, Lady Bird Johnson, uh, of course, the uh, wife of President Johnson, uh, and to say to her, Bird, uh, I'm gonna run for Hale's seat. And uh, I hope, uh, I wanted you to know that before you read about it in the paper. And she said, what? Well, Lindy, darling, that's wonderful, but how are you going to do it without a wife? <laughs> and indeed, that was kind of relevant because what I'd heard about her was that when Hale was a member of Congress, that she was really the boiler room person, the person behind the scene, a real, the real political technician. Oh, she was uh, by far the best politician in the family. Always, you know, Koki always pointed out, you know, Koki of the five uh, children, the five people in that family, Hale, Lindy, and the and the three children, Koki was the only one of the five who never ran for Congress. Both her brother and sister ran, neither of them won, both of them ran. But she always pointed out the only member of my family who never lost an election was <laughs> Lindy. Um, and uh, she was really elected by acclamation, pretty much, um, and served uh, nine terms representing the second district. Um, and um, she, uh, everybody in the city understood that she, it wasn't just that she had such a um, a profound uh, talent for political organizing and uh, but she also as you point out came from 
really, in some ways, the oldest family in New Orleans politics. That she was a Claiborne, Claiborne Avenue, of course, the longest uh, street in the city is named for her family and her direct ancestor, W.C.C. Claiborne, was the first governor of the Louisiana Territory after Jefferson bought it in 1803. Um, so uh, the Claiborne name, much more than the Boggs name, um, is a profound part of New Orleans and Louisiana history. Now, wasn't there a, a, a sister who was like mayor of what, Princeton? Uh... That's right. Her older sister, Cokie's older sister, Barbara, was mayor of Princeton, ran twice, um, once for governor of New Jersey, once for the Senate, and, and did not win. Her older brother, Tommy, who was a very prominent lawyer and lobbyist in Washington, actually ran for Congress from Maryland in the district where I, I live now, and he didn't win either. Uh, but... Um, uh, you know, Cokie always felt, uh, she, she always said, and I write about this in the book, that people always asked her, well, how did you become a journalist? And the, and the truth is, the single biggest reason she became a journalist is because she married one. Uh -huh. um, uh, and uh, she uh, often said that uh, our early life together was kind of a one-man journalism school for her. I didn't have a lot to teach her, frankly, Arrow, but um, uh, she... Uh, uh, was pointed in that direction and of course had this magnificent career as a journalist but always felt that it was at least a corner of her life that she wanted to devote to public service that was so much the tradition not just of her parents but going back many generations in Louisiana history and so uh, in 2002 uh, when she left her job as anchor of the Sunday morning show and at ABC um, one of the main reasons she left the job was that she could then be freer to devote an important part of her life to advocacy for the causes she cared about. Now, she never got involved in electoral politics, unlike her brother and sister, but she was deeply devoted to the cause of women and children around the world. And she became a board member of an organization, wonderful organization called Save the Children. And she traveled the world uh, advocating for women and children, learning about their programs. And that part of her life in the last 17 years of her life satisfied this uh, element of her family tradition of public service that being a, she always said being a journalist was being, was public service, but she always wanted to be more directly involved in that, uh, that mission to advocate for women and children was a very important part of her life. I want to get back to Cookie. Let me talk about, about Hale. Uh, at the time of, um, his disappearance, I guess that's what you have to call it the disappearance because they never did find the body. Um, he was a uh, House Majority Leader, is that correct? And that's correct. Yeah. And he, he could have been on the he was on the track to be the next speaker of the house. That is correct. His his deputy, the, the whip below him on the leadership ladder was Tip O'Neill. Uh, and uh, when I just four years after Hale died in 72, uh, Tip succeeded him as the majority leader. And then four years later, Speaker Albert, Carl Albert of Oklahoma retired and Tip became speaker. But Hale was ahead of uh, Tip on the leadership ladder. And, um, you know, Hale had become a uh, very young, uh, very early in his life. And he, he was elected in 1940, he was defeated in 42 went into the Navy during World War II and then was reelected in 46 in that first class of young veterans coming into Congress, including John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon were both in that class. 
And Hale became a favorite of a man named Sam Rayburn, who was the longtime Speaker of the House. And Mr. Sam from Texas had no family of his own. Um, he had married young and briefly, you no know, children, no family in Washington. And here was this young family, Hale and Lindy, you can imagine what a gracious hostess she was, three charming children. And so Sam Rayburn became like a father to Hale and um, was out at this house where I'm sitting right now, was out at this house countless times for dinner. Um, and, uh, and Hale became his protege and his favorite. And uh, particularly uh, Hale ran and lost for governor of Louisiana in 1951. And then in 1952, uh, the family pretty much decided that their life would be here, not back in New Orleans. And so they bought this house I'm sitting in now. And Mr. Sam came out here many, many, many times for dinner and um, was really, as I say, a father figure to Hale. And um, so Hale was, was uh, trained and nurtured by Mr. Sam to rise in the leadership. And almost certainly he would have been speaker if he hadn't been killed. What does the family think happened in Alaska? Well, of course, there's an enormous amount of controversy over that. There are countless conspiracy theories. There are new podcasts about it. But basically what the family thinks is the most obvious, Errol, which is that Hale and this young congressman, he was in, he was in Alaska to campaign for a young congressman named Nick Begich whose son, Mark Begich, eventually became senator from Alaska. And um, they were flying uh, to a uh, campaign event down in, in Juneau, and they were flying across a body of water called Prince William Sound. And it was a stormy uh, night. And um, uh, almost certainly what happened was the plane iced up and plunged into P Prince William Sound, which is a very deep body of water. And that's why the uh, plane was never found. Um, President Nixon at the time was very generous to the family and very helpful in trying to, he deployed all sorts of U-2 spy planes and all sorts of reconnaissance uh, assets, because of course this is a major um, military installations in Alaska, particularly Air Force. And they, he scrambled those planes and to try to find the wreckage and it was never found. And so uh, we just have to believe that that's, that's what happened. But they, you know, when you don't, have a definitive answer when the wreckage was never found, when the cause was never proven, that spawns conspiracy theories. And so those continue to bubble up. But I can tell you the basic conviction for most of us in the family is that it was simply an accident that uh, occurred because this pilot made a very bad judgment and tried to fly through this storm and never got there. And there are, uh, for instance, Many examples in Alaska of small planes that went down because well, there's a lot of small planes in Alaska, you know, all, the, all the planes hopping around and then the kind of terrain you have around there. And so it's not unusual to have that type of an accident. No, and the, and the pilot who was of this plane was known as kind of a risk taker. But look, um, it was a long time ago. And uh, yeah. I understand that these conspiracy theories keep popping up, but um, I've never, and Cokie never um, gave much credence to any of them. But you know, remember Hale had been on the Warren Commission investigating President Kennedy's assassination, and he was a controversial figure. And Nick Begich was a controversial figure. And so, as I say, when you don't have answers, conspiracy theories grow in that environment. But yeah. 
I, I've never given much credence to any of them, nor did Koki. Well, let's, let's go back to Koki for a second. Uh, you look at her life and there, uh, try to pinpoint just for the sake of conversation, certain aspects of her life. Um, one was her early days. She was really one of the founders and her pioneers with NPR, National Public Radio, wasn't she? She certainly was. Uh, you know, uh, there's actually a funny story about this. Um, we had been living in Greece where I was a New York Times correspondent. We moved back to Washington in 1977. Koki's looking for a job. And given the enormous success she had in life, it's, most people don't realize she was 33 years old before she had her first full-time journalism job. And uh, she was, we came back home and she was looking for work. And she was very unhappy about being home and, and very um, uneasy and, 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 and uh, nervous about looking for a job. And uh, I uh, went to work in the Washington Bureau of the New York Times. That's why we were back in Washington. And um, so um, I was introduced to a young woman who was sitting at the desk next to me. And I introduced myself and she told me her name. And I, I said, I don't recognize your byline. Are you new to the paper? And she said, yes. And I said, where'd you used to work? And she said, National Public Radio. And I said, what's that? <laughs> because <laughs> I didn't know what it was. It had been in existence for six years. But for four of those years, we'd lived in Europe. So I just didn't know what it was. And she explained to me what it was. And I instinctively thought this is the perfect place for Koki to work. She had done some radio work for CBS in Europe, been very good at it. And um, so uh, I said, what do I do? I've got this wife crying herself to sleep every night in Bethesda, what do I do? And she said, well, you talk to my friend, Nina Totenberg, who then and still is the uh, Supreme Court correspondent of NPR and became one of Koki's dearest and closest friends. And uh, so I called Nina and she said, get me Koki's resume tomorrow. And so I walked out of the door of the New York Times office, walked about three blocks, downtown Washington, delivered the resume to uh, Nina. And Errol, this is the first time that I saw the old girls network at work. Uh, NPR had, from the very beginning, had uh, promoted women and women's voices. And they had much more leverage and clout within NPR than any other news organization. And so a woman like Nina was able to do for Koki what men had always done for each other for time out of mind. And she basically pushed NPR to hire Koki and they were a little reluctant. Uh, they were a little reluctant partly because of her very obvious political connections. They were a little reluctant because they didn't think she had a classic radio voice, um, but they took her on as a part-time reporter and very quickly people came to realize what an enormous talent they had there. And as Koki joked, you know, pretty soon everybody was claiming credit for having discovered her. <laughs> but um, uh, she, was, she was almost 34 years old. Uh, the first day she was a full-time journalist. Isn't there, an NPR style of reporting or of news delivery. Uh, I think if I turn on the radio and I didn't know what I was listening to, and I heard this certain type of delivery, I'd say, well, this must be an NPR station. Well, yes, up to a point. Um, you know, uh, public radio is very distinctive in the radio universe. It's very different from commercial radio, um, not just because it doesn't have commercials, but because it, it takes a much more serious approach to the news and a much longer form, you know. I do commercial radio. I work for ABC radios to this day. And, you know, if I get two or three minutes on the radio, that's a lot. Uh, you know, NPR is, a, is a, 
devoted to a much more serious and, and, and in-depth approach to the news, but it's also a certain style, sure. And, um, but she got very, very good at it and, um, and loved radio her whole life. Even after she moved her base from NPR to ABC in the middle of her career, she always stayed connected to NPR. In fact, they, ABC, when she was hired by ABC, part of her deal, part of her demand when she was hired was, I want to keep my connection to NPR, which was very unusual. But ABC wanted her so badly that they agreed to let her stay as a presence on NPR. And as many of our, your listeners know, Errol, she continued for many, many years to do a Monday morning commentary on, on NPR. And then in the last few years of her life, she created this new feature called Ask Cokie, which was wildly popular on NPR and where she would answer viewers, listeners' questions about history and politics, of course, which she was an enormous expert on. So, so what was it like when she moved over to ABC and you have the addition of something called a, a television camera at this point? Well, um, she never uh, really wanted to do breaking news on TV. She, she, she didn't like, you know, everybody else on ABC or any network wants to be on the big evening news broadcast. She never cared about that. She always wanted to, she was for many, many years a regular on the Sunday show where it was much more discussion based. And, and then of course she hosted Nightline many times. She um, was a fixture on, on all of ABC's live events for many, many years, State of the Union addresses, election night. She made a specialty of covering the Catholic Church because of her background and uh, was at the Vatican many, many times whenever there was a new pope or anything like that. Koki was always the ABC correspondent there. Um, and um, it, you know, it changed our lives. Uh, she became much more visible, uh, much more celebrated. Um, but it changed our lives in one way, but not in another. Um, she still remained always the most down to earth person. You know, she always said, the reason why people like me on TV is because they feel like some people called her everybody's smart big sister. Someone else called her, you know, typical suburban housewife. She, she always said that what, what people like about me is that I'm sensible. And then I ask the questions they want to have asked, particularly women. And I and I, I approach it from a very kind of down to earth point of view, and 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 so, she never let her celebrity go to her head, but she got very recognizable, you know. And people would stop her in the neighborhood Safeway up the road here, after people would get knew her pattern. She'd go to church after Sunday after her show, and then she would go to the Safeway on her way home, and. Um, people knew where, when she would be there. And there were all these people would sort of go to the Safeway, try to track her down and tell her their opinions on things. And people would say, Cokie Roberts, you're in the Safeway, you're doing your own grocery shopping. And she would say, well, yeah, I mean, who's gonna <laughs> do it for me? Would you like to do my shopping for me? I mean, she never lost, never, ever, ever lost touch with who she really was and what was important to her. And, no matter how famous she became, no matter how much money she made, no matter how celebrated or recognizable she was, the basic Cokie never changed. But you know, even in New Orleans, because I, I know she was born here, but she, she really spent a lot of time away from New Orleans too while she was she was growing up. So once she broke into television, I remember, you know, there's this person named Cokie Roberts and people saying, hey, you see that person? That's Lindy Boggs' daughter. And people weren't familiar with it at that time. But once the people in New Orleans 
realized who she was, they, they felt proud of her. I mean, they, they didn't really know her, but they just kind of felt that, that, that you know, it's one of us. Well, it was it was two ways, uh, Errol. It, it was it, she never lost her love for New Orleans, never lost her deep affection for the city. Um, even though she, the family moved here pretty much full time when she was eight, she always she always had relatives back in in, in New Orleans. To this day, you know, uh, uh, the Morrison relatives, Rene Morrison, Chet Morrison, uh, both relatives who are dear friends of hers, uh, uh, and. Uh, she uh, and her aunt um, lived on the Gulf Coast of Mississippi, Hale's sister. Um, and so she always had an anchor in New Orleans. She always had a deep affection for New Orleans. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, T. Martin, who now runs Commanders, um, is, is a, was a very close and dear friend. And so she always, any excuse she ever had to go back to New Orleans, she took it, <laughs> Errol. She... Anytime anybody asked her to make a speech or gave her an award, or uh, she always, always accepted and always went back, and usually ended the night, late night at Commander's Palace with T and and um, her cousin Dottie and and uh, and of course the late great Ella Brennan, uh, T's mother, and uh, and of course Lindy uh, also uh, after she left Congress. Um, between the time she she retired from the Vatican and and then Katrina, Lindy lived pretty much most of the time in New Orleans on a house on Bourbon Street that she inherited from her aunt. And that so that was so amazing. Can you imagine if you knew Lindy Boggs and who would have thought Lindy Boggs lived on Bourbon Street? All right. And uh, uh, just a quick anecdote. There was one night there was an event at La Petite, and we were leaving, and we saw her, and she was walking back. By herself and yeah so, so we offered to walk her so we walked her back and she invited us in and fixed drinks and told the story of her life it was just a wonderful it was a wonderful experience it, it yeah. had a beautiful home well it was a one of the historic homes in in the french quarter and it's remarkably well preserved of course given the style your listeners are familiar with you know it's, you don't see much from the street because it's sort of a uh, just a storefront on the street but Inside, there's a beautiful courtyard. And, um, and you know, this is a home that Lindy inherited after Hale died, Errol. And so it was her place. It wasn't a place they had shared together. It was Lindy's place. And it had been Lindy's relative, her aunt Frosty Morrison, who had willed it to her. So um, it was very much her place. And, and over the years, she was very generous with that house. It was such a show place and such a different and interesting um, venue that a great many fundraisers, parties uh, were held there. She was always very generous about letting people use it because people wanted to see this house. It was so unusual um, to have uh, access to one of the original and most beautiful French Quarter houses. So um, it was, it, so, Lynn, so Cokie had great many excuses to always go back to New Orleans and see her mother and see your relatives and make a speech and um as i say she would have been very very pleased to know that our grandson you know is following it because hale and lindy met at tulane they met working on the student newspaper at tulane the hullabaloo and uh, so there's their great grandson hale who's named for hale and that grandson of mine their great great grandchild hale mcdonald roberts is named for hale boggs and he's now a freshman at tulane so 
tradition continues. And what's he majoring in? Uh, I'm not sure yet, but uh, okay. he um, he's just a freshman. Uh, but uh, he, uh, you know, he's in the family tradition. I wouldn't be surprised if he winds up majoring in politics in one form or another. Okay, just had kind of a quick flashback that night I was talking about when we walked Lindy home and she brought us in for drinks. The phone rang and she went to answer it, and it was Koki calling just to check on her. So yeah. I, I just remember that the uh, Koki also became okay. So she's doing radio, she's doing TV, and then she started doing books, and especially books about women in history. Well, yes, and and uh, that's true. She wrote five best-selling books. Um, you know, if she had only had a radio career, it would have been magnificent. And then she has this TV career on top of that. And then, as if that wasn't enough, she then writes five best-selling books. And But there's a, a very profound connection here, Earl. She said it many times, and I write about it in the book I've written about it, that her sensibility, her impulse, even her mission, to rescue the stories of women's contributions in American history were directly related to her mother and to her mother's friends because she had seen the way Lindy and Lady Bird Johnson and Pauline Gore and countless other women had been such important figures in American politics as advisors and counselors and confidants to their husband that that gave her an insight, it gave her a sensibility. And she said many times, you know, that the figure in history that my mother most reminded me of was Dolly Madison. And so she could, she had the, the experience of growing up with her mother and these women gave her the insight to go back and understand the roles that women had played 200 years before. And um, uh, she always said that it was, it was Lindy's model that gave her that, um, uh, gave her that insight. And, um, but then, you know, by the, the tragedy of history we were talking about, the fact that Hale gets killed in 1972, and Lindy moves from backstage to center stage. She moves from the wings to the spotlight which she never anticipated and, and never would have happened if Hale had lived. But suddenly in 1972, she becomes a member of Congress. And the day that she became a member of Congress, there were only 16 women in Congress. That's all, 16. Now there are well over 100. And so she found herself in midlife as this pioneer, um, pioneering woman in Congress. Um, with a profound sense of obligation to work on issues related to women. And, and one of the issues that she was most connected with during her 18 years in Congress was guaranteeing equal credit for women. And she always focused on issues, often focused on issues, not only that benefited the city of New Orleans, but also uh, benefited women in general. And um, so the accident of history meant that Lindy lived two lives. She, the first half of her life, she lived the traditional life that women had lived for 200 years and played the traditional role women had played. And then in her 50s, she becomes a member in her own right. And then, of course, as a coda, as a 
after she left Congress, Bill Clinton made her the American ambassador to the Vatican. So in her 80s, she moved to uh, Rome and, and she was very uneasy about doing that. She was, as I said, she was already in her 80s. She had no spouse, so she was moving by herself. And Koki said to her, Mama, if you go to Rome, it's a no-brainer. You get to do the two things in life you love most. Go to church and go to parties. <laughs> and <laughs> it, it, it seems like I remember hearing that uh, Koki also teased her about going and representing Bill Clinton to the Pope. <laughs> That's true. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, she jokes that, you know, when, when uh, Lindy was named at the beginning of Clinton's second term, you know, you think it's a very cushy job, and it is a cushy job. You've got this big house in Rome, you've got all these uh, people to carry your packages and your luggage, and it's a very cushy job. But then Monica Lewinsky happened, and all of the scandals of the second Clinton term, and as Koki used to joke, you know, suddenly it wasn't so easy anymore trying to represent Bill Clinton to the Pope. But the fact is, she became very close to the Pope, and um, uh, as you mentioned earlier, there was a moment when and Koki and I visited her many times when she was in uh, in Rome, and um, Koki had always been wonderfully uh, generous and even joyful about embracing my Jewish heritage. She was, we used to kid, she was the best Jew in the family. She used to kid that there was not a lot of competition for the title, but um, uh, she was deeply devoted to celebrating Jewish holidays and, and making my Jewish heritage part of our family. But it worked two ways because when I went to Rome with Koki and we went to this mass celebrated by the Holy Father and we walked into this small sunlit chapel and there was the Pope on his knees at prayer in these very simple white vestments. Um, it was a profoundly spiritual moment that transcended doctrine and liturgy and it always symbolized for me uh, the what we had tried to do throughout our whole married life, which was get beyond the labels and the prejudices and expectations people had of us and find the common ground that we both shared and believed in. And that moment was a moment of pure spiritual um, beauty. And wasn't it sort of a, a shocking moment? Like y'all were escorted into the chapel, you sit down and all of a sudden you see this man up front rising with the Pope. Yeah, as we walked into the chapel, there he was and uh, at, at prayer, he's on his knees at prayer. Um, it was one of the most important moments in our entire 53 years of marriage. Uh, but it symbolized this larger idea that we always believed and always tried to live by, which is that you know, there were a lot of people who told us when we were very young that this couldn't work, that the doctrinal differences were too great, including our own families, particularly my family. You know, Lindy and Hale growing up in New Orleans had had many Jewish friends and had, um, particularly in democratic politics, and they, they were much more comfortable with the idea of a Jewish son-in-law than my parents were with a Catholic daughter-in-law. And, um, uh, and, and we, always, we tried very hard, and I think successfully, to get past those prejudices and those preconceptions to a place where we focused on what we shared. And, and we wrote a whole book about it, you know, uh, because many people over the years have sought us out 
uh, about saying, how do you manage an interfaith relationship? And so we just tried to tell that story in the hope that some people could learn something from it. With me is uh, journalist Steve Roberts, who I guess you can tell from the, from the context of the conversation, besides his illustrious career was, uh, uh, was married to Koki Roberts and has a, a book um, uh, about her telling about her life experience. You know, Steve, the, um, Lindy had written a book herself, something about what the life through the purple veil or, or something like that. It was, it was about her early experience growing up. And as I recall, she grew up in, um, in New Rose, Louisiana, where she was raised by aunts or something. But anyway, she went to school at a convent in New Rose. True. Uh, uh, she, you know, she was a Claiborne, uh, but her father died very young. Roland Claiborne was her father. In fact, I have a grandson named Roland for him. Okay. Uh, but Roland Claiborne died in the flu epidemic of 1918, when Lindy was only two years old. And so she was largely raised um, by her mother and uh, uh, her mother remarried twice. And uh, uh, she largely grew up in New Roads up the river um, on plantations uh, and came down and was raised by the Sisters of St. Joseph, was raised by nuns as Koki was um, and educated by nuns and something they very important they shared. Um, and she really only came to New Orleans to live uh, when she came to college at Newcomb. But uh, she talks and, about she talks about that experience with the nuns, and she said it was from seeing the nuns as a young girl that she became convinced or aware of the power of women, because she said over there like the nuns were driving trucks and they were painting and they were doing carpentry work, you know, doing all kind of things. And so she says seeing them convinced her about women what women can do. Well, uh, this was true for both of them because Koki was trained by the Madams of the Sacred Heart. Uh, she went to school as a young girl to the Rosary right there in New Orleans, um, which was a Sacred Heart school. Um, and then uh, after the family sort of moved their home base here, um, she went to a Sacred Heart school here in Washington called Stone Ridge. And Koki, her whole life was deeply devoted to the Sacred Heart order in particular and women religious in general. And she had a profound appreciation for their contributions. And um, when she was interviewed, as she was many times by church publications and others asking about her religious faith, uh, there was one interview where she was asked, um, if, if you could change one thing in the church, what would you do without missing a beat? She said, ordain women. Um, <laughs> because she always yeah. felt, you know, and, and she, um, and she always felt that as a woman in the Catholic Church, it was a constant struggle to, to maintain her faith and maintain her connection. And she said many, many times, you know, I'm, it's my church and my faith, and I'm not going to be driven out uh, by this male hierarchy that I don't agree with. But she, it was so, her, her, her commitment to uh, the nuns was so deep, Errol, that at her funeral, which was a mass at the St. Matthew's Cathedral here in Washington. Um, the women who brought up the gifts at, 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 at uh, communion were Sacred Heart nuns and they all wore red scarves uh, in honor of Koki. Um, and, and I planned it that way. I, I, I very much wanted them to be part of that service because they were so important to her. And she said many times, she, in fact, one of her 
she dedicated one of her books to the Madams of the Sacred Heart. And the way she put it in the dedication was they took girls seriously in the 1950s, which was not something a lot of people did. And so her, and, if, and, and really I can tell you, uh, not long after we met and when we really were first dating, there was also a Sacred Heart College in Massachusetts, not far from where we were both at school, Newton College of the Sacred Heart. And a number of the nuns that she had known as a young girl were now teaching at this college. And she trotted me out one Sunday to that college. And if the nuns didn't approve, this relationship wasn't going anywhere. <laughs> you know, I had to pass, uh, I had to pass the nun test, but apparently I did. Now, when she was diagnosed with, with cancer, she became an activist for the cause, didn't she, in terms of trying to, in trying to promote the women's health? She actually started long before she was diagnosed herself. Um, uh, she, I tell the story in the book. She had two women friends uh, die of breast cancer in their 50s the same week. And she tells the story of going to the, and they were both being waked at the same funeral home. And the funerals were, were the same day, but they were set at different times because a lot of these women had many friends in common. And Koki tells the story of that day of, of just being so furious at the toll breast cancer was taking uh, of women that she just committed herself to being an advocate and an activist long before she was diagnosed herself. This was many years before she was diagnosed and she, um, and she, you know, she raised money for breast cancer research. She spoke out uh, often uh, and became a, a real expert, unfortunately, in that disease. And, and when she was diagnosed herself, it only amplified and, and in, uh, her commitment, but um, it, it long predated her own illness. Right. Um, I'd talk a little bit about your career too. The um, well, first of all, you know, when you bring out people who thought there'd be conflicts between having a marriage with a Catholic and a Jewish person, more difficult to me seems to be two people doing a column together. I mean, that seems to be like even more of a challenge. How did that work out? It was actually pretty easy. A, a lot of people, married couples, hate writing together. There's a famous story that. Jimmy and Rosalind Carter almost killed each other when they tried to write a book together. Um, but um, from a very, very early stage, um, we started writing together back in the first early years of our marriage. Um, we actually wrote a number of magazine articles together when Koki was first kind of learning journalism and first uh, uh, acquiring, uh, you know, a public... Uh, reputation. And I think at the core of it was that we both respected each other's judgment so much that we didn't really question each other very much. I mean, uh, I just respected everything she had to say. And if she wanted to put it a certain way, my view was got to be right, you know. And so we started doing this very young. Uh, when I was a correspondent for the New York Times in California, uh, we did a whole series of magazine and newspaper articles together. Um, then when we moved to Greece, uh, again, for my job, um, she started writing on her own. But over the years, we, we wrote a number of magazine articles together. We wrote two books together, as well as that newspaper column. We wrote over a thousand newspaper columns together. Um, and 
the way it worked was we would sit down on a Monday or so and agree on a topic and who would write it. And, uh, and then once uh, one of us wrote it, the other would edit it. And so um, over the years, we, you know, we worked pretty well together, although um, there was one moment, and I write about this in the book, when she was writing her first book, We Are Our Mother's Daughters, which was this phenomenal national bestseller, 26 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list, one week at number one. Uh, one of the chapters that she was writing, the, the way she organized that book, it was, um, it was according to the roles women play, both public and private. And one of the chapters was, was a chapter on being a wife. And so she showed it to me and said, what, read it, please. And what do you think? Now, Errol, I had not stayed happily married to Koki for a long time without understanding the ground rules. And I, we edited each other gently. And I, I said to her, before, I want to know what you, the rules are here. Do you want a real edit? Or do you want a pat on the head? And she said, no, 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 I don't have time. She was angry with me. She was right on deadline. No, 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 Stephen. You got to tell me what you really think. So I read it. And it wasn't very good. It, it didn't have her flair and bounce. She'd written it, she'd written it too fast. And because she was so naturally witty and, and, and joyful in her writing, it didn't have that extra zip. So I took this very deep breath and I said, honey, I think it could be a lot better. And she looked at me and said, I just reread it. I agree with you. It could be. And I said, shoo. Because, <laughs> you know, um, but um, the truth is that we loved writing together and we, we took great uh, joy in doing it together. Um, there's another funny story about this. We had, uh, there's a long backstory, but the short version of it is there's, there's a book in Jewish tradition called the Haggadah. And the Haggadah is the book that contains the order of service for Seder, the, the Jewish ritual at Passover. Um, and in my view, the most important holiday in the Jewish calendar. And this is an ancient text that goes back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, but Koki, when we got married, decided she was going to write her own in typical fashion, right? Uh, I used to kid that she certainly was the only daughter of an ambassador to the Vatican who wrote a Jewish Haggadah. But uh, she wrote this version and we used it for years in the family. It was specifically designed for interfaith couples. Uh, and we had it on mimeograph paper. It had just been typed out and written out. And people in the Jewish book world heard about this and asked us if we would publish it as an actual book. And uh, so we thought this was a good idea and we agreed to do it. And I was rereading the original text and I thought it could use some freshening up. It was kind of dated in some way. So I started making changes in it. And she looked at me and she, she saw what I was doing and said, Stephen, you cannot change a word. This is sacred text. We've used it for 25 years. And you can't change a word. I said, okay, darling. And again, <laughs> I knew when I was, you know, when something mattered to her. And then she starts changing. And I said, wait, you said I couldn't change a word. She said, that's right. I said, you couldn't change a word. <laughs> but since I originally wrote it, I can change it. And we came to an understanding that we both could edit it. But, uh, you know, at the core of it was was this larger notion. You know, we had such respect for each other's judgment that it actually 
lubricated the whole process. It was it was a joyful process. We loved doing it together. Let me let's, let me ask you just a quick as historical footnote question. Um, you know, in, in New Orleans with with Mardi Gras, uh, the first Rex, a man named Louis Solomon, it's always been reported that he was he was Jewish, and, and in fact, the only Jewish Rex. But a few years ago, we're doing research on it, and we found out that he converted to Catholicism, like in the 1860s, uh, right before the Civil War. And it's like converted Catholicism, but then later in his life, he moved to Long Island, and ultimately he was buried in a Jewish cemetery. And it seemed like he was a, a, a philanthropist there. So here was someone who was Jewish, converted to Catholicism, and then apparently got active uh, in, in, in the Jewish synagogue toward the end of his life. And also Mayor Martin Berman in New Orleans was Jewish and then con converted to Catholic. Now, I don't know what he did later in his life, but you ever seen many examples of that? Uh, well, you know, it's interesting because people have often asked us about this and the word conversion is a word that we never spoke to each other. From the very earliest days, we met when I was 19 and she was 18, we were pretty young. But part of what drew us to each other, apart from the normal magnetism of teenagers, was the we were both very traditional people. We were both very loyal to our own traditions and tribes. And we knew from the earliest days that if we were going to have a life together, it would have to be recognizing the differences, not one of us converting to the other tradition. It was never on the table. It was never spoken about because, as I say, what we admired in each other was our devotion to our own traditions. And we came to love and embrace each other's heritages um, in, 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 in profound ways. Um, while staying true to our own tribes. And, um, uh, you know, everybody does it their own way. Every family figures this out. And it's, there's no one formula that works for everybody. For some families that are interfaith families, one, one uh, partner converting is the best for them. In other families, basically not doing any religious uh, rituals or, or, or ceremonies works for them. For us, we had to figure out a way to live with both traditions because neither one of us uh, wanted to abandon. In fact, quite the opposite, both, both of us were fervently devoted. In my case, it was, but we were different. In her case, she was a practicing Catholic in a religious sense. She was raised by nuns. She went to church every Sunday. Someone once asked her, What's your favorite Sunday news program? And her answer was mass. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, so that was her, that was her identity. Someone, she, someone told me the story once that he met her for the first time uh, when she first started working at ABC. And she says to this guy, Mark, there are three things you need to know about me. I've been married to the same man for 20 years. I live in the house I grew up in and I go to church every Sunday. And if you understand those three things about me, we're going to get along fine. And this man said to me, you know, the only thing that changed over all the years was the number of years you were married. Otherwise, it was exactly the same. That's who she was. My devotion 
to my tradition was just as powerful, but it wasn't through religious devotion. It's much more cultural. My grandfather had been a Zionist pioneer in Palestine early in the 20th century. I grew up in a very Jewish neighborhood in a very Jewish community. So my loyalties were much more tribal and cultural than they were tied to religious practice. But despite those differences, what we shared was this common bond of um, commitment to our traditions and embrace of each other's traditions. When Lindy was at the Vatican, did you ever get to meet, other than seeing him in the chapel, did you ever get to meet John Paul II like on a personal level, like having a beer with him or something, or did you ever get to really talk to him? Or? No, uh, I did meet him uh, after that uh, moment in the chapel uh, later that morning, uh, we did have a visit with him, a brief, but it was more of a ceremonial visit. I have some wonderful photographs from that visit, but um, no, I, I never did. But of course, Lindy, being Lindy, um, had a deep friendship with him, um, a very real friendship. Um, and uh, uh, and it was, but that was Lindy, you know, uh, she could, uh, uh, she could charm anybody, including my father. You know, when my father was so uneasy about our relationship and so uh, hesitant to have his son uh, marry a Catholic, uh, you know, the combination, can you imagine the combination of Koki and Lindy going after my father? He didn't stand the chance. <laughs> and, um, and finally, he said to me one day, you know, Stephen, it would be a whole lot easier to oppose this marriage if it wasn't so obvious that she's the perfect girl for you. Uh, and then I knew it was going to be okay. Yeah. But when Lindy and Koki turned on the charm, pretty powerful combination there. That was a beautiful comment. This has been delightful. I just have two more questions and uh, I'll leave you alone here, but I'm, I'm certainly enjoying this. And um, just look at it from a different angle. I mean, you've had a career as an observer of politics, American politics as a commentator. Just looking at the United States today, what do you think? Well, it's an awfully big question. I, I think two things. Um, um, I regret many of the trends in American politics, particularly the ones that have increased polarization and driven the parties apart. And, you know, Cookie and I talked about this many, many times. Um, Hale and Lindy were Southern Democrats. They were people who played critical roles in the Congress and national politics in general as deal makers, as, 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 as pragmatists. Um, and they weren't the only people from Louisiana who did this. If you look at people like John Bro and Bennett Johnston, they too were perfect examples of that same tradition. Um, and that element of the Democratic Party has virtually disappeared. Joe Manchin of West Virginia, virtually the only one left who represents that tradition. In the same way, you've had the almost total disappearance of progressive Northern Republicans from New England or Pacific Northwest, Upper Middle West. And the center of American politics has been hollowed out. 
Um, and, uh, and I deeply regret that. And there are many, many, many reasons for it. The media silos where people only get information that reinforces their prejudices instead of contradicts them. The um, redistricting in many states that uh, mean that virtually every member of Congress has a safe seat. There are many reasons, but, uh, and so I, I, I regret that trend, you know, when, at one point, um, Betty Ford, Mrs. Gerald Ford, summoned Cokie and asked her, uh, said to her, I, I want you to give a eulogy at my funeral. Uh, and I want you to talk about the heritage and the friendships that our family shared. This is, Hale Boggs was the Democratic, one of the Democratic leaders of the, in the Congress. Gerald Ford, before he became president, was one of the Republican leaders. They were on opposite sides of the aisle. They were political rivals, but they were personal friends and their families were friends. And that provided those tiny but powerful threads of connection that don't exist anymore. And so I, it's impossible to imagine the wife of a Republican president asking the daughter of a Democratic congressman to give a eulogy at her funeral today. But at the same time, Errol, I, I think the, the, the uh, reports of the demise of American democracy are overrated. I think the lesson of the last year, January 6th, the insurrection was not the weakness of American institutions, it was the strength of American institutions. The story was not that about the insurrection, the real story was how the institutions survived that challenge. So, and I think Koki would agree with me that these institutions are very, very powerful and very important and very enduring and that we sometimes overreact to the news of the moment. I'm not minimizing the, uh, uh, the profound threat that January 6th posed to democracy. But there, as I say, the, you know, my takeaway is not the threat, it's the survival and the, and the triumph of the system. Okay. Well said, and a little bit of encouraging when we need encouragement the most. Finally, let me just kind of catch you off guard here. Can you tell us the Koki story? A Koki story? Well, <laughs> time limits it. So we could do this all day, I wish. But yeah, I know, you know, there are, I heard a great many stories um, about her, some of which I had never heard before. And, and, and the message of this book, Errol, is, in, is two sentences. Not everybody can be a TV star. Everybody can be a good person. Everybody can learn from Koki's life uh, about her countless acts of generosity and charity and friendship and loyalty and mentorship. She did something good for someone else every single day of her life. And she had a young friend, African-American woman who worked at ABC and um, uh, this woman uh, had, uh, had a cousin who was killed tragically and uh, had a small child. And this young woman inherits this child and is trying to raise this child by herself as a single mom. She's still going to college. She's still struggling. And she, so she just sought Koki out. Koki became her 
a mother figure too. She had her own mother, but she Koki just became a source of such strength and advice. And, and then this young woman's uh, brother was killed. The family was devastated. And there was a, a funeral in this black church in New, in Washington. And the family is just is sitting in the front row and they're just deeply grieved and shocked. And Asanya told me the story at the back of the church in Mark's Cokie Roberts, the only white person in this church. She walks down the center aisle. Everybody in the church is watching her. She goes to the front pew and embraces Sonia's mother. Sonia says, it was like my two mothers embracing. And she did something like that every single day of her life. That has nothing to do with being on television. That has nothing to do with being famous or rich, that has to do with being a good person. And everybody, I hope, who reads this book will get that message from it, that the most important lesson that Cokie Roberts' life teaches is to be a good person every day. And every one of us can learn from that. Well, thank you for uh, sharing her life with us through the book. Uh, the book is called Koki, a life well lived. Uh, it's at all the places where you expect to find good books, and it's on uh, Amazon and at bookstores. And and uh, you can just tell from the interview with a fulfilling uh, read. This will be Steve. Thank you very much. This has been great. Harold, my pleasure. Okay, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Louisiana Insider. Subscribe, like, and rate our show where you listen to your podcasts, and follow us on social media at Louisiana Life Mag. Executive producer for Louisiana Insider is Kelly Massico in cooperation with Louisiana Life Magazine. For subscription information to Louisiana Life, call 504-828-1380. Our theme music was provided by Rich Collins. Hey, that's me. Join us again next week for more discoveries inside Louisiana.